Novoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jonathan Jones, also known as Redbeard, has been known to stir the pot. As a relative newcomer to the fishing industry, Jonathan has no problem admitting that he's here to bring the entertainment. He is tattooed, gold-toothed, cheeky, and outspoken. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Jonathan to discuss his why, Australia's flats fishing, and state of the fly fishing culture down under. Born and raised right here in Manly, on the hill, Manly Hospital. Can you just explain to people... Where Manly is. Yep. So Manly is located on the east coast of New South Wales. I think you call it adjacent to Bondi. Okay. So not far out of Sydney though. Not at all. I live in Manly Beach half of the year with my husband. It is a lot different than my other home in northern BC. It's quite busy. And I also hear that it didn't always used to be like this. I actually heard that Manly used to be a little more run down and now it's it's bumping. I mean, you can't get parking around here. It's like tourist central. It's a surf city. Yeah. We had uh, one of the, I think it was the top five most violent pubs in Australia. Was that the Stain? The Stain, yeah. Growing up as a kid, you heard a lot about it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I did hear a lot about that yeah, when I there, moved here. There are a few people don't know, but if you look in the Corso, there are, are plaques dedicated to people that were, um, I guess you could say, killed in battle. <laughs> what? Like yeah. what? Drinking late at night? Yeah. yeah heavy alcohol violence. Right. Yeah. So, born in Manly Beach uh-huh. and regular family. What was it like growing up for you? Um, I had a, a very. A good upbringing. The beginning years were, were tough because mum and dad were still figuring out their career path. Um, Which were? My mum's an artist, it still is, was a, a photographer. Uh, my father is financial advisor, chartered accountant. I mean, just he's an all-around good guy. Growing up, I watched them or us go from like a very... Just a beach family, you know, we'd be at the beach Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Parents were pretty casual. And then around the age of 10, I guess, their careers, from my age of 10, their careers started to take off and things changed a little bit, not much. We, we stayed in the area, nothing, to be honest, changed. It was just a little bit more financial freedom. Do you have um, siblings? I do. I have a half-brother and half-sister from a, a previous, uh, my mother's previous marriage. Okay. Yeah. So what kind of, I mean, was everything normal for you in school? I'm just going to work my way up your timeline. So I have no no relationship with my older siblings. Uh, my, on purpose? My, yeah. Yeah, on purpose. My biological father left my mother six months pregnant. So he's a real good bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so your dad is, that I met at the film festival is not your biological that, father? He No, it's my oh. stepfather. He was there when I was born. So he's your dad. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. There's, there's, when I found out there was no question in my head, who's my dad, you know, one bloke raised me, one bloke had a party and might have had a fun night. That's not being a father. Yeah. So when did you find that out? My mum told me when I was probably 13 or 14, probably Ooh. around the time when I was old enough to, to kind of understand. 
That's a really impressionable and a really interesting time in a teenager's life, though. It is, because at, at, you think about from 13 to 18, the brain is so spongy. Everything around you at that age, you absorb. Did it make a difference for you? No, not at all. Okay. Um, to be honest, I was told one afternoon, I was went to my buddies to stay there for the weekend to go skateboarding. We skateboarded all weekend. My dad picked me up. I think we may maybe spoke about it for 10 minutes. And in my head, you know, like if you're going to do everything for a child from day one, you're, you're its dad. Were you already busy being a juvenile delinquent? Is that why it oh, didn't yeah. make a difference? Yeah, big time. So what were you like as a teenager? I, was, I wasn't a, a tantrum kid. I was a menace. I didn't do the jumping up and down so much. I did the more like, oh, if I can't have it, I'll just steal it or I'll, you know, like yeah. it never came from anywhere malice. It was just, I was a turd. But you were financially stable and comfortable. Yes. So, but your parents obviously were still strict, I would guess. Yeah. So what they would say, no, you can't have it. And then you'd go cause shit. It would start with a, like a, a kindergarten surprise. At okay. the supermarket, like a chocolate <laughs> egg with a toy inside, or we'd be walking around. I'd say, "Hey, mom, can I have?" No, no, no. You can have it, but you can have it later. And I'd think in my head, "I'm having it now." So I'd open it in the supermarket. I'd eat it. I'd play with the toy, and then leave it. But leave the the evidence in the trolley. Now, some people would say you're still causing shit. And we will get there. But uh, it's one of the reasons why your story is so interesting to me. Not gonna deny that. Um, it's not that I, I like causing shit or I'm here to cause shit. It, it's I'm just me, and I say what I say. I tend not to have a filter, um, and I think rather than upsetting people, I think some most of the time it's kept some people on their toes. Okay, um, so let's work our way up there. Yeah, um, you had mentioned that you went to boarding school. Uh-huh. So what was that all about? Did you do something bad? Because, I mean, I understand if you're in the middle of nowhere and you go have to go to boarding school, right. but you're in Manly Beach. Yeah. So what's the story behind that? Behavioral. <laughs> Definitely behavioral. Um, it didn't start off with, with looking at, at, you know, boarding schools or, or strict Catholic schools. I think for my parents it was... They're at a stage of what do we do? So at that point, they decided that, you know, the best thing for me to do is have a probably a stricter education. I got expelled in year five for something that we won't talk about. But <laughs> it couldn't have been that bad in grade five. Smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll just say cigarettes <laughs> in year five. Sure. You know, from British Columbia. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, so smoking. Yeah, um, smoking and then it just, it kind of unfolded. So I got kicked out of one school and then it became um, apparent that I had severe dyslexia and, and ADHD. Right. Um, so I moved around schools a lot and it got to the point where it was, for my parents, you know, we would like Jonathan to have an education. So they they pick some schools and a year later I'm wearing a, a hat, a bow tie, a tie, a blazer, a suit pretty much to school. So it worked? 
to be honest, I actually enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, what about it did you enjoy? I enjoyed the camaraderie. Um, Gee, were you missing that as an only child? No, because I had to be a best friend that, you know, we were inseparable. Um, so every day we would be at the beach surfing at the local skate park, skateboarding, um, or just at each other's houses. So it wasn't the camaraderie, no. I mean, it wasn't that I wanted that from being an only child. I had that already. My parents made it um, very accessible for me to be around other kids, which was great. It was when I started acting up and the other kids' parents thought, oh, this might be a bad influence, was when the, the whole school and education thing um, became prevalent. And my father being a fourth or fifth generation shore boy, it was, you know, go to private school. You know, your parents worked hard to, to live in Australia and to send you to a private school. And that was the stigma I grew up around with grandparents, and that didn't last long. Now, your grandparents, we talked about this at a, another time that we'd been sitting down yep. together. You had mentioned that your grandfather, tell me the story about him, because I think this is just the coolest thing. So, uh, great-great-grandfather, he started a small department store, which is now pretty... I think it's a publicly traded company. David Jones, David Jones. Which is the equivalent to which company in the States, would you say? Like Macy's. In, Macy's. Kind can, of. Uh, in Canada, it's like the Bay. Yeah. Um, Holt Renfrew, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yep. Something like that. It's actually a fantastic store. So he was part of that. So, yep. I mean, I, it's not really anyone's business and it's, and it's definitely not a huge part of your timeline, but I am going to paint the picture that you came from some sort of comfortable. Upbringing, which my, makes my other grandfather did more, more than that. Yeah, my, what did he my do? My mother's father did a lot more, and he, he was an architect. Oh, uh, that's right, and he built that beautiful house that I was in of yours. Yep, he did. He built that with his hands. He built uh, a lot of Sydney. He had a lot to do with uh, all the the air force bases in World War Two, and also some pretty to do structures throughout Sydney. Now, I have an angle here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of feels like you certainly weren't struggling growing up. It feels like you were maybe looking for something. Well, so what I had growing up was I was always around money, not around family money, around friends' parents that had, you know, the Mercedes, the Jaguars, the big homes. And in the early 90s, that was... If you had been successful, then people tended to flaunt it. So my parents, they didn't have that. They didn't drive the Jaguars. I think my dad drove a Mazda 323. Seeing that made me realize, well, you know, my parents aren't wealthy. But you get to a certain age and then you see your parents succeed through their drive and then you undertake an understanding of where that came from. So, yeah, my parents came from, from very stable families. But in, in their era, you didn't get trust funded. You, you were told, go out, get it. And then if you succeed, you succeed. If not, then you toe the line and, and you work. And, and that's the Australian way. So, yeah, growing up, uh, I'm not going to say I, I lived off rags by in any means, no. Um, we traveled the world a lot, which I was very fortunate. My parents gave me that opportunity and they worked hard for that. I didn't realize that I had a, a fantastic 
financial and, and loving family environment until I was much older. It's interesting for me to hear your upbringing because it helps me to piece together why you're passionate about what you're doing today. So we will circle back to that. But first, for people who have never heard of you, let's just keep painting the picture. So you graduate from boarding school? No. Did no, you graduate? No, no, not at all. Never graduated school. Do tell. Um, finished school uh, age of 15. I was out of the private and public education sector by 15, 15 and a half. Um, by choice? No. What happened? Well, behavioural mistakes by choice to get kicked out. You wanted to get kicked out? I didn't like school. I hated school. Um, it was, you know, everyone around you tells you growing up school's one of the best things that you can go through in life. Well, to me that was not true because coming into a school, a learning environment with severe dyslexia and ADHD in the early, late 90s, early 2000s. They had no idea of how to deal with it. So you were outcasted, teased, bullied, and not by students. Like I, I was locked in, um, I was at a school, the teacher locked me in the, uh, the storeroom for six hours because she didn't know how to deal with someone that couldn't read or write. You know, and if you, as a young kid, if you're not getting the attention you need, you you search for other avenues to get the attention. So how did you do that? Were you interested in the outdoors at that time? I love the uh, Everything I've ever done was outdoors. So like, how did that all come to be? Um, my grandfather. So being so close to my family... My grandfather would pick me up from school, take me to the beach or take me fishing or we'd do stuff in the garden around his house. He'd teach me how to build things. So having that interaction from a very young age, you know, growing up on Sydney Harbour, um, I had the water at our doorstep. I had fishing at our doorstep. I also had the national park as our backyard. And I took heavy advantage of that, you know, running around pretending I was, you know, Vietnam War or dressing up as cowboys and Indians, uh, doing stuff like that with my friends. That's what we did. And then we'd go to the beach and surf. So growing up with a grandfather that taught me to love the outdoors was a, a huge blessing because a lot of my friends never had that. Yeah, it seems like it's it's definitely rare around here today. Was it, it rare it back is. then? Yeah, uh, Look, a, a lot of parents, we're only 20 minutes from Sydney CBD sitting at your house um, and I'm five minutes closer. So when you think about it, not many of those parents that live around here would be taking their kids out bush or on the ocean or teaching them to fish or just general little survival things even, you know, like how to nail two bits of wood together. I know 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds that still struggle to comprehend if I didn't live here, I wouldn't believe you, but I live here and it is <laughs> I'm not joking. Like living in a different world. I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. Why would you, were you just bored? Why would you start stirring shit? And what kind of shit did you stir? Um, like what kind of trouble did you get into? Uh, some people get into drugs. Some people get into stealing things. Some people get into, into killing drugs. people. What did you get into? Um, definitely not into killing people. <laughs> um, I got into to just... Small, small mischief, you know, stealing small Kinder things. surprises. Candy and magazines. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, candy okay. and porno mags. So you're still pretty young at this point, or is this about 13, 14? Yeah, 12, 13, 14. Okay. You know, through that very adolescent, you know, when, 
from probably about 12 to I think 15 was like a bit of a not a bad stage look what to be honest what can a 15 year old do there's a lot a 15 year old can do right but in a in an environment where they can't physically hurt themselves or damage other people's well-being if you're a rat bag at 15 it's like oh, you might steal some of your dad's beer and take it to your mate's house or turn up at soccer practice half cut you know at 15 that's what i was up to i, I wasn't up to i don't know you steal a few things yeah you know you might walk past a nice bike here in manly and it's five minute walk home or a two-minute bike ride, I'll take the bike. But did you ever hit a crossroad when you were like, okay, I can either spend my time going fishing and getting out of this trouble or I'm just going to dive full on into juvenile delinquency? To be honest, it wasn't. I went full on into the juvenile delinquent. It went from small-minded things to getting pretty heavily involved in the graffiti community. And that was trying to find something within myself, some kind of acceptance into a, a community. Um, and I, I got that from the from the graffiti community over years of, of vandalism. If there was a fly fishing community, a young fly fishing community, do you think that that may have taken you in instead or that you would have been drawn to that instead? Because you're not stealing and getting into trouble for money and no. you're not doing it because you have a drug habit. No, Um you know what, if there was, I would have been drawn to it very quickly. Was but there anything like no. that then? Hey, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, a fly fishing club in Australia to a 15-year-old, if yeah. a 15-year-old went and walked into one of these clubs today, they'd, they'd have a hard time just relating. Yeah, even if they do exist, it was impossible, almost impossible to find them back right. then. And I think too that that, that age bracket there's a huge gap so for me to relate to someone back then I don't think it would have really appealed to me yeah but if we were to spin it another way where one of my older peers say someone I looked up to in the graffiti community or an older friend had said oh how cool is fishing we should go fly fishing I would have said well screw steel and spray paint let's go catch some fish because that was something I already had enjoyed as as a young kid. It just took a long while to circle back around. Yeah, it does that. Yeah. Okay, so you don't you don't graduate high school? Nope. So what'd you do next? You're 33 years old now. So what happens so, between 15 and a half and 30? Oh, so ha- let's just say 15 and a half and 30, what happens? A hell of a lot. Life's been a roller coaster for me. So I dropped out of school and said to myself, "You know what? I I, I want to do something." Uh, my mum agreed to uh, take me under her wing and, and homeschool me. Um, that worked and it, it helped get me to complete a tertiary education at, a, at TAFE. I spent two years at TAFE doing my year 10, two years. If any normal person should take him six months. Um, through that time, I, I, you know, was hanging out with some interesting characters and... Um, Education was not on my radar. What was it? Are you still getting in trouble or are you still fishing? How do you divide your time between fishing? Well, at that point, I'm not really fishing. Okay, so you're um, just being a young man. A, yeah, a rat bag. A rat bag. Yeah. At that point, you know, you're not working, you're not at school, so you 
can go out and do whatever you want. And having the freedom that my parents allowed me to have, it was like they just gave me enough rope to hang myself, which was great because, you know, when it got to the point where it's like, oh, shit, I need to reel this in, I could. I wasn't too far gone. So completing school and, and getting my year 10 certificate was a big thing for my parents. Um, and I saw that the, the um, not fulfillment, but, you know, a parent seeing their child achieve something when the child's not really, you know, a, a golden egg. Um, so seeing that, I saw, oh, you know, I made my parents happy for once you know, probably since I was a kid. And so that started to stick with me. Putting them through, mum through nervous breakdown and and everything else and dad through all the bullshit, picking me up from the police station and cops dropping me off. I saw the the happiness and, and fulfilment my parents got out of seeing me achieve something. So when I realised, all right, I'm a shithead, I still have to do the right things via me and my family. So years went on, I still acted up, I travelled a lot, spray painted a lot, lots of graffiti, ended up um, going to jail for graffiti overseas and then end up, this is going, you know, now I'm into 18. You know, going through those growing pains of getting into young adulthood, it got worse because growing up around here in, in certain uh, walks of life, you need to prove that you're worth something. So it got to a point, you know, where boys be boys, they've got testosterone and they're throwing their weight around while well, you start to get in fights. And that became something of a, a, you know, a daily basis, people picking on you and that happened a lot. And I, you know, come 21, 22, I started, I was in the workforce. I was working as a, a screen printer and a photographer um, down at the snow so the snow, snow was something I found through trouble. You're talking snowboarding? Snowboarding, okay. yeah. Um, in Australia? Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that there is snow in Australia. There is, yeah. There's a little bit, not much, but there's a bit. So I was introduced to, to snowboarding at around the, the ripe age of I – was, I was young when I was introduced to it, maybe 15, 16 – 18, 19, it started to take over and it started to pull me out of doing the bad shit. You know, running around and getting up to mischief. So my job, I I was printing T-shirts at night or through the day and I'd save up and I'd leave Friday night and drive straight to the snow with two buddies. We'd stay down there all weekend. Well, doing that, I met someone who saw something. And he, you know what? He, the guy gave me a shot. Even though I was a shithead, we are down the snow stealing everything, um, <laughs> which is horrible. But we would pay for our trips by stealing all our food. Why didn't you just ask your parents for some money? Or we go- had the money. We'd use it to buy alcohol. I I 100% agree. You grab them by the ear and give them a good old slap across the head. Yeah. Maybe more. Um, I had that, but it didn't change. So I met a guy called Russell Holt, professional Australian snow, probably one of the the best. But not just 
as an athlete, as a human, the guy, he, he offered to take me around the world. He took me to New Zealand. He took me to France. He took me to Austria and Switzerland. And I learned something from this guy. You know, you can be a little edgy or you can be a bit of a rat bag, but you also have to respect and, and toe the line. And this is when I, I started to understand life's more than, you know, getting in trouble. So I followed photography, picked up a camera, started shooting photos for a couple of snowboard mags. Next thing you know, I was snowboarding so much, started traveling the world, snowboarding, taking photos. And um, I had a relapse come 25, got back into graffiti Mm. uh, because the snow stopped working. I fulfilled everything I personally wanted from it, you know, traveling to America and spending time with the pros over there, shooting photos with them, snowboarding with them. And it was, it got to a point where it was like, oh, this is done. So I came back, got back into graffiti and went to Europe. Then things changed and laws changed. Graffiti policies get a lot more strict and I got in a lot of trouble and, um, when I came home, I said to myself at 26, you need to turn this around and not be the dropkick everyone wants you to be. So from then on, I, I went back and I found my passion for fishing. Grandfather passed away and really dove into fly fishing. Um, spent some time in America just doing some soul searching and it was all fly fishing. And I thought, you know what, this this could be the thing I've been looking for my whole life. And I can tell you it was. What was it about it that made you feel like it was such a good fit? Every, everything about it from being in the outdoors, the environments you get to experience to the people you get to meet. You know, I've met some of the, the most genuine and beautiful people through this sport than anything else. I've been on Vans Warp Tour for skateboarding, snowboarding tours. I, I, I met some good people doing that, but I haven't met people that will play big as big a role in my life um, as people in the fly fishing industry. Before I start diving into your career today, yep. what is your career today? If you wanted to tell people what you do, who you are in Australia today, who are you? What do you do? Okay, so... Um, my career today, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I look at avenues to um, either make money where I can still live a, a happy and a, an outgoing lifestyle, or I look at, at ways to just scrape by. So I work here in Sydney as a part-time fly fish. Well, I'm a full-time fishing guide. I work as many days as I can. Um, I guess, yeah, define full-time fishing guide. I think if you live and breathe it, you know, you wake up, you're in the mindset, like you might not have some a client that day, but you still have to clean the boat or prep gear or research moon tides, water temps and, and you know, do your work. But it's not like you're a firefighter Monday to Friday and you're guiding on Saturdays and Sundays. No, no. So I, I no offense to firefighters, I love you guys. Not at all. Um, I work my own time. I have a couple of businesses that I, I run and I manage, um, and I'm a, a silent investor in a couple of companies. Which, to anyone out there that thinks that 
Jonathan Jones or Redbeard gets paid to travel the world by his fishing sponsors is is delirious. Oh, you don't? <laughs> I look, I'm not going to lie, I do get some fantastic financial support, but you hear the stories and no, I I, I don't get paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. And um, financial support and Fishing isn't like working with Adidas. I mean, you know. No, we don't get given an ambassador contract of a couple hundred thousand plus product. No, uh, you know, I, I get enough to, to do what I can and, and I get the support to do some some crazy projects that I don't know why they support. But it it seems that I brought something to fishing that may have lacked or may have, I, I don't know. And we've had this conversation before about, you know, the rat bag and fly fishing. Right. And you had mentioned that you thought that maybe it was a newer thing. And I remember I had said yep. to you, well, trout bubs have been there from mm-hmm. the beginning. And we started down a really interesting road of conversation there. So It's definitely, I'm nothing new. Anything I've done in the sport is nothing new. I just did it with my own pizzazz. Do you think that you're going about your career differently? Yeah. Because in the way that... I don't want to say backwards, but so many people, you know, you've got to really master your craft first Mm -hmm. and then try to be a pro. Do you feel like you were in front of people before you were a pro and now you're really working hard on being a pro? I mean, we're always working hard to better our craft and be 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 bigger pros, but do you feel like you went at it? I can't think of a different word. It sounds so offensive, but did you go at it backwards? I did it my way. I think where you're going with it, you're right. I I came in and did it a completely different way. Um, when you say pro, I, what the fuck's that? Good. Professional? I mean being really good. Okay. Do you think that by the time that people were watching you that you were genuinely like a hotshot, really talented angler? The hell no. You- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Look, uh, all I'm going to tell you is, and straight up, I've never spoken to a fish that's told me that my cast looks shit. And to me, fishing is, it's time on the water you, and you have to enjoy it to sit through and sift through the weather and just the bad fishing opportunities. Well, I didn't come on the scene because I was some great caster or, you know, uh, I came from a dynasty of fly fishermen or, or stuff like that. I had it in the family as hobbyists and whatnot. I saw it as like the, I saw social media coming out, okay? And I, th- I saw people, how would you explain it? Um, not displaying, but... Uh, like putting out an image of being. Right, exactly. Yeah. I was seeing a, an image being portrayed in this sport. And I thought, oh, that's not something that I can relate to. What image were you seeing? The button-up, Columbia shirt-style khaki pants. Um, I think a lot of Americans kind of call it the the college kid look. Oh, the frats? Yeah, f- yeah there you go, frat. And I just I couldn't warm to it. There's no, there's no vibe, there's no spirit. And I'm looking at these guys wearing these daggy-ass clothes. Because in Australia, there's none of that. No. And, and the guys that I do see around here, I mean, they're usually in like shirts covered in bait or 
in why why do they wear these they wear these tournament shirts <laughs> or they're wearing these bright fluorescent like trady shirts right that's so you don't bump into them and then the blokes <laughs> with the tournament shirts that's so you know they have sponsors they're, they're the ones getting paid not I've me i've never seen anyone with a button-up shirt in this country i have fishing yeah over the under the age of 50 i don't know if he is it's button up and semi fluoro. But one person you've seen. Yeah. But in America, they're everywhere. So what was not resonating with you, the guys in America that you were seeing on social media? It was a bit of both. It was some of Australia, some of America. And I thought this is just cheese town. Um, and I, I don't mean to insult anyone by any means. Please don't take this the wrong way. But I did. I just saw it as cheese town. You know, like what you guys got up put your makeup on and got dressed and then went fishing. Okay. I can't, I don't believe that. 90% of the people don't believe the things that I do. So it's, it's understandable. Why did it matter? Well, at the time, this was when I was searching for a place to put my energy and, and, and really looking, you know, I went through a failed business previous to the fishing thing and it led to a, a pretty, it was a sad ending. You know, I lost a good friend, a, gr- a great friendship. But needless to say, you know, business brings out the best and the worst in people. So from that experience, when I dove into fishing, I wanted to, to just feel like I belonged and, and have my own environment. And I went and did some casting. I did two casting clinics and I definitely was ignored um, here in Australia. So I thought, oh, maybe this isn't the sport for me. But as time went on, I used social media, um, like everyone has, um, to, you know, show some photos and whatever else. And Why were you feeling the need to relate to other people or, or have other people relate to you? Fishing such a solitary thing for so many people. It, it wasn't about them relating it was about me escaping what was going on in my head and be able to share the fishing or the outdoor experience with other like-minded people. Was there a part of you drawn to fishing because you saw that there was potential for camaraderie? Or did you get into it to be alone? No, I got into fishing to, to escape on my own. It's, this started off as a, a sole venture. I then started fishing with people who came from similar walks of life and were looking for very similar things but not expecting anything in return from a certain industry. That's what I found and that's what I f- have made me fall more in, in love with the sport. And it's funny because the frat guys, the, the Columbia wearers, some of them are now some of the people I look up to. Are they still wearing button-up shirts? Hell no. Oh, interesting. What if they were? Would you still relate to them? Yeah, of course. Okay. So what did you do then to make some sort of step forward and and find Um, find these people? I think one day I I stumbled across uh, an Australian fly fisherman's Instagram. And he had, you know, 10,000 followers or something. I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, he's he's using this this new tool, this brand new tool, to expose business opportunity. And had you wanted to make this a business opportunity no, at that time, or was it no. all recreational? This was just me having some fun. 
But I stumbled across this account and I was like, well, this guy's either portraying that he's getting paid to go fishing, fly fishing, or he's making an income from it. Was he a guide? Not really at the time. He is now, yeah. But I saw him capitalising on photography and and the way he was putting his imagery out into the, the public via social media and I saw the rally that got behind that and the movement that that created. And so I thought to myself, well, that's cool but I'm not as talented as, at, at this as that person. I'm not a, um, a socialite. Um, I tend to keep my, to myself a little bit. So I thought, what can I do to, to just get my name out there a little bit? So I went back to my photography. And what was the purpose of getting your name out there? I wanted to, to jump into an industry that I personally thought was accepting for me. Social media was not what people think I used it as. Um, and what I'm, do people think that you used it as? Oh, that that's the, the stepping stone. Well, that's not just you either. I mean, that's, no, I, that's what people think of virtually uh, anybody uh, who gets look, into I it now. 80% of the fishermen, look, hunting, fishing, cycling, motorsports, everything, people have capitalized on social media to build a name. And I think they've used that to build a name to bring in an audience. And that audience then, as time rolls on and you prove your craft or your ability in what you're doing, they then turn into clients or they then turn into possible business ventures. So rather than looking at social media as something that I'll get a pat on the back from, I looked at it from a, an actual business point of view. And I realized that you can create a product without spending any money on social media that in years down the track you could possibly sell. So I created a, a name on social media, Redbeard, which, I mean, shit, I'm probably the the most, <laughs> you pull out a packet of popcorn when I write something on social media and people will sit there and watch. And it's not that I choose to upset people or whatever. I just, I do me. I don't have a filter. So why even bother? Why not just keep your mouth well, shut? Well, you get to a point where you start to care because you see it so much. So I, I really tried to try to try to try to try to try to try. And then it's like someone says something and it's, it's not directly aimed at you or what you're doing. It's, it's aimed at your generation. And so I thought, fuck it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play this. You know, I'm going to play it like a pool game or a soccer game. Uh, you know, there has to be entertainment. And that's what I looked at fishing. I was like, what the fuck is the entertainment? Because I'm falling asleep watching some of these shows and I'm thinking to myself, like, you're catching amazing fish, you're in amazing destinations, but you guys are, you're boring the wall paint off the walls. And I thought, oh, I'll use my cheekiness to, you know, get people talking, to, to create a little bit of hype, if you want to call it. Which works um, in this country, but... Were you thinking Australia specific? Because America, Canada, we've seen all this before. You guys have. Um, the funny thing is, is I guarantee you this little Australian gets talked about a lot more over there than he does in this country. 
But um, how is that considering we have seen it before? Because I remember, I mean, if we're just going to lay it all down, I remember hearing your name first come up when I moved here mm-hmm. and people were like, well, there's just no room in this sport for tattoos and that and sort of, like him. that sort of crowd. And I was like, well, hold on. That, that sort of image has been around for a lot, 15 years ago in, well, in Canada. I mean, so Brad Pitt must be a horrible, horrible actor. Because he's got tattoos. David Beckham must be a terrible soccer player. Because he has tattoos. But they, was, they, were, they, they were worried about this image that you portray derailing... The industry. I mean, I could, we could sit here and argue both sides for days. But, but my point is, is that I just remember being a little baffled because I had seen it before. Yeah, my goal Us. wasn't to rile anyone up. My goal was to come in... Open my door that I wanted to open, fish, do my thing. I never had any idea that politics existed in fly fishing. Honestly, I had no idea. And when I experienced it for the first time, I thought, well, if that's it, then I can handle this. And whether it be in a a humorous way or whether it be in a way that if you're going to talk shit, go ahead. But please know that at a certain age for some people, if you're going to talk down on them or, you know, give them a name that you don't personally know them from, you should be ready to, you know, cop something back, whether it be just a vocal, a verbal or in worst case scenario, you might cop a slap on the face or a knock on the chin, which you look at it in every sport, it happens. Someone gets out of line, they get a little slap around the head and they get brought back down to reality. Well, you could say, yeah, I probably needed a slap around the head when I first came on the scene. I didn't have anyone showing me the ropes. Do you have any regrets? No, I don't have one. Look, I do because uh, one regret. I've I've passed away some opportunities that I shouldn't have purely because I didn't think I was a, an appropriate um, character for the for the role or or a, the correct person for the for the position. For me now, doing what I do with with the part time guiding or part time hosted trip thing and and the film. I look at it as I'm a ska- from a skateboarding and snowboarding background. So for me, if I want to do a project, I, I create a budget. I go, I, you know, submit the idea. If someone doesn't like it, I'll just fund it myself and do it. Which then when you do that, brains come around and go, why is he doing this for himself? He's not getting anything out of us. He's not asking for anything. Why is he doing it? That was the big question. Why am I doing it? Why is Redbeard or Jonathan Jones coming into the fly fishing scene and making films? Well, it was the lack of the younger generation and the connection. Because everywhere I traveled around the world, I connected with the younger demographic. I never connected until a later date, you know, with met people like Carter Andrews, Flip Pallet, uh, Lefty, Oliver White. It, it, <laughs> I never thought that I would ever get in the position of knowing those kind of people. If I had one regret, I would go back and 
possibly clean my act up a little bit, but I can tell you now from meeting and spending time with those people, it doesn't, I don't think my appearance or anything that I've done to upset people has affected the way they've looked at me because they've taken the time to talk to me, get to know me. And you'll notice I'm a, a pretty calm, collected person. I'm not a, a guy that just runs off on a, on a tangent. So that to me was if I could connect what I built through social media or through the avenues that I've used to connect with those people that I looked up to, I've done my job in what I wanted to do. But the next stage was bringing the younger generation into that ballpark. And you think about it. If you were 15 and, and, you know, you've read about all these people, right, and you hear all the stories and the ins and outs of the industry, I I would think, you know, if you were a smart person, you wouldn't get into the fly fishing industry or the fishing industry. It's, It's tough. So I, for me, I saw a complete avenue. It, it wasn't anything that anyone had, had not done or done. It was just me doing what I wanted to do. And it rubbed people the wrong way. And yes, I rubbed some people the wrong way for sure. But I don't regret it. Were you trying to inspire people who also felt like outcasts or dirtbags? Were you yeah. trying to inspire them? Yeah. Are you ever afraid that you are inspiring people to come into the industry or the sport and aspire mm-hmm. to follow in your path? And they are also going to start by trying to be, say, insta-famous and then work backwards? Well, I mean, you can look at like the Happy Gilmore of fishing. So you had someone that came onto the golf scene. It was a little different. Got people riled up, had a good time. But at the end of the day he didn't bring damaging people to, to that sport. He bought people that were, wanted to go and see someone different. So the money was still coming in. The brands were still selling their stuff. You, you look at it in a lot of sports. But the difference is, is that here we have a, a, a natural resource that can't handle people. Because my, th- my, my thoughts are the people who take their time building their way up, Mm-hmm. develop a relationship with the environment. They're more likely to give back to it. They're more likely to respect their elders, et cetera, et cetera, yep. working their way up the line. And by the time that they're a pro or they really want to make something of themselves, they've already really founded this relationship with their peers and their environment. What I'm seeing on the internet now are these people coming in from the other end and a lot of that depth is missing. Right. So what you've just said is actually something very important, which I should clear up is, I had connections in the fishing industry pre me being Redbeard. So I had a, 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 this person has, you know, um, I'm not afraid to say this anywhere. He pretty much helped me save my life and get life on track. And that's Krista Mustad from Nautilus Reels. And it's not a plug for a brand. It's a plug for a, an amazing human. And I'm getting emotional talking about it. He, he reached out to me and I owe the guy everything for, for certain things. Guidance, just being a friend, talking me through how to do things properly. So I started off with, with the, a, a guy who's been in the in, immersed in the industry for a very long time. Um, and I also had the support of three other people who a guy Jim Maurice from Fly South he he was pretty much one of the first 
to help connect me with people in the industry. And then through Jim, I met a guy, Zachary Bogart. He's just, <laughs> you don't have to go to, to the Olympics to be the best caster in the world. But when people like Carter Andrews and other guys say Zach's the man and he's my buddy that I hang out with on a daily basis, I thought, wow, that's really cool. Well, a couple of weeks later, I'm on the phone with Carter talking. A couple of months later, he's in Australia we're fishing together so I had relationships seated in the industry prior to my social media you know boom or bust whatever you want to call it Um, relationships to me growing up were the most important things because if you have a great relationship with people they know you they know that they can trust you they know what you will get up to when you're down and up so these, the slowly through time, through Kristen and through Jim, I, I was introduced to other companies, which then took me on board purely because of who I am, not because it's been done before or, you know, guys have come through with tattoos and done. No, it was just Jonathan Jones. He, he is a nice guy and he's here for, for a reason that a lot of people aren't. Um, we have a lot of gear grubbers in the sport. We have a lot of people chasing a, a a medallion that doesn't exist. And that is just, it's not me. And the reason I got to where I am today with, with I don't know, sponsors and, and presence in the sport is it's not social media. It was those relationships. Um, I didn't... I grew up in the era of phones and computers. I also grew up in the area of handshakes and face-to-face. And I will say this to everyone who, or anyone who's looking to get into this sport at a young age, work on relationships with good people and work with people that, you know, envision seeing your vision, um, whether it be the sport grow, whether it be handed down into to the younger generation or open some doors for them. When you or anybody else speaking to a young person, Mm -hmm. this isn't just to pick on Jonathan Jones' session. If you're talking to a young person and you're telling them, you know, listen, don't do that for free. There's a a cost on that or a a charge to that, which is scary because young people today are already so entitled. If I knew more than two people that did what I did, which is I know you, you, you do the social media thing, you, you travel, you fish, this is your But career. I grew my career, I always feel like there are people who have their career because of their social media following, right. yep. and then there are people who have their social media following because of their career. My social media following came as a result of my career, not the other way around. Well, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I had a couple of thousand followers up until a year ago. So what's that done for me? But what about these young guys who are looking for... If someone assumes that I've helped someone to get into a sport to make a dollar, that is the realms of fantasy. I know one kid. Actually, that's that's wrong. I've helped some people, yes. In a way of, of helping them in their life to get to a much better point, I'm guilty of that. I am not guilty of telling someone you should do this and get paid. Well, I wouldn't be doing this if that was my mentality. I'd go work for a hedge fund. 
I go work at the bank. Um, and if I have any advice for younger guys getting into the sport, it's that. Follow your passion, follow your love. If you love it so much that you're willing to sacrifice a real job, relationships, a lot of things, then get into fly fishing for sure. Um, so going back to social media, if you're going to use social media as a tool, you better sure as hell realize that that is the bottom of the barrel tool for, for the, the real business side. It's a great way to, to market yourself and, and show people that you're a part of something. But hard print and sticking it out in, in this sport is a huge thing, which I know a lot of people thought I'll be here yesterday, gone tomorrow. Well, print media, I get to share my photos. I get to share a story that you can't necessarily show on Instagram. And it also connects you with a reader that may not use Instagram. So I think that's where a lot of the younger guys forget that we still have print media and the guys that matter in this sport use print media. They like to read. So it should never be the ultimate end-all, be-end-all social media. You should know that it works for some things and for others it doesn't and that the major component to being the guy that gets given the gear and paid to travel is the hard work and the sweat and the slog. It's not just being some guy with a social media account. And look, fishing is an investment in you. So if you want to move forward in it, you have to invest. It's like education. You pay for your own education. We buy books to educate ourselves. We listen to podcasts to educate ourselves. Well, it's the same in fishing. The more you do it, the harder you you know, the harder time you put in, the more you get out. For ninety nine percent of us, this is a hobby. So I think that we we need to look at it as it's it's still a hobby. You know, we need to drop the ego and just fish. And that is why I'm I'm here. Let me ask you this. You have a very controversial fish that you caught. Oh, big eye tuna. I'm glad you asked this question. So I was up at Fraser Island fishing, filming for Marlin, a film called Stick Face, which I think that upset, that rattled a lot of Australian community. Why? Um, exposing something that's kind of been kept pretty hush-hush. Marlin, was it offshore? On the flats. On the flats, yeah. right. So I was fishing, had a camera crew, the whole lot. Was this yeah. self-funded or was this one sponsored? Both. How do sponsors feel about it being controversial in Australia or do they not care because it's Australia? What's controversial about catching a fish? Well, you said that people around here didn't like it because it's a right. secret so spot, right? it exposed a little bit. It rubbed some local guides and local fishermen up the wrong way. Do was, sponsors care or do they just not know? Why would they care? Because, it, it, look, and not in a, a rude way or anything, the sponsors are getting what they want out of it because they're sending you there to do a project and it's not in ill will or there's there's no nothing malice to it it's all just making a great film that's all we did but we exposed an area that i guess now people all around the world i was the guy that you know, you walk around Florida or anywhere in America. Oh, that's the guy that catches the mullen on the flat. Well, tell me about this because you know I'm I not love the it. first guy to ever do that. Sure. And, and I will never ever say that. No. The, 
there are a lot of people who did it long, long time before me. They established it. They have a career doing that. I just came in and did what Jonathan does and I make a mess of it and I make it look exciting and fun. But so how does, I love Marlon and I've only ever done it offshore and off the rocks. So I've actually never seen this done. How does it work? So you, you switch them up, you, you troll them. Wait, you're on the, okay. So you're in, you're not on foot. You're in a boat. You're on a boat. You're in six feet of water, eight feet of water. Okay. So you're using the trolling motor, not an electric motor. I'm using a normal motor. Um, I'm dragging the belly flaps. I'm giving out secrets here too. <laughs> um, I'm dragging belly flaps of certain fish for teasers. Okay, so you're trolling the same speed as if you were offshore. 100%. No I'm using way. this like a, a game fishery. Okay. This is another thing. I came from a little bit of family background on game fishing. So I'd experienced. Well, to your defense, so when did I move out here? It would have been five or five years six ago. years ago. And I went marlin fishing. With Vic Lavette. Right. We were going to experiment. I think I said you went with the wrong guy. Well, <laughs> well he's a gear fisherman and he's a fantastic. Mate, Vic's a bloody legend yeah, around he here. Is. He's I need a pioneer. To get him on the show, especially considering he's my neighbor. Um, but yeah, so he we went out and he doesn't fly fish for Marlin. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, we'll give it a try. And so um, I think the boat was still in gear at that point. Yep. And only... Only somebody who knew the rules would have caught it. The video was so subtle and it was a shit show. So it wasn't like it was it was trying to impress anybody. It was just more or less showing the shit show. Yeah, what show. was going on? But you sent me a message and you said, you said you caught it. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know who he is or how long he's been fishing for, but he caught that. So he's obviously got an eye for it. Yeah. So that was even back then. So I, I, I believe you. So you have Look, a bit I, of a background in, in it. We'll, we'll get to the tuna in a minute, but billfish on fly, I'm 32 to, to zero. I've really? I've boated 32 billfish. I've done six of those by myself. You know, I don't believe you right now. I got the fucking video to prove it. Um, that the film we did, Stick Face. Yeah. In two weeks, uh, we boated uh, twelve fish. 12, okay. twelve fish. Okay, so you're on the flats. You're trolling. You're as doing if you're... anywhere from six to maybe ten knots. Okay, you've um, got you're your dragging teasers, belly flat, you're dragging whatever. a dredge. You're, you're doing whatever you can to to alert the fish that you're there. But I mean, in the flats, you can see them. Yeah. Well, so. <laughs> I didn't know about this fishery. And aren't they just sunning? I mean, can't no, you just no, no, get up swimming. on them and no, cast? No, no, no. I saw a video of a marlin. It was by Paul Dolan. If anyone's, and I'm going to cop a lot of flack for this, but he is a huge pioneer for Fraser Island. And I personally, he's one of the best fly fishermen on the East Coast. I saw a video from Paul. Fish a Canadian lady. Uh, she caught a, a marlin on the sand. To me... That was something that I would, would go and live out on my truck for for six months. And I did. I lived on the beach out on my truck for six months figuring out what these fish are doing there. Well, a lot of people won't tell you it's part of their migration. So the Great Barrier Reef is, is one of the, mo- the only known spawning grounds for, for black marlin in the world. So these fish come in, they come in hot, and these baby juvenile fish, they get caught in a current which only comes... And I'm really giving out some material here, but whatever. You, these fish only show up when the floods happen. 
And I'm not going to say when the floods happen, but we need certain water to move other bodies of water down the coast and across the reef to bring these fish in. Now, I can tell you in the last two years of you being in Australia, how many marlin have you seen get smashed at Fraser? Because I'm telling you, I've probably seen six, six, maybe seven. And these guys are keeping it quiet, but six or seven. Now, the three years that I was up there, and we had the flooding and we had some big weather patterns, people were boating four to ten fish a day. And you look at it, you, you have to do the research. You have to know when the water's there, the temperature, certain temperature, you need to know when the bait's going to be there and you need to look at the winds and moods. Now, I spent six months not catching shit up there and that's, you know, $200 a day. I'm just forking out of my, my money. Sponsors aren't paying for it at that point. So I get up there. I figure some stuff out for myself. I get given some fantastic information from a guy called Brett. He taught me some things. He showed me some stuff, and I was so grateful. Well, the next day I went up there by myself, and I hooked a beak on fly. I teased it in, hooked a beak, all on my own. Standing on the cooler, boat out of gear, fish pretty much to the transom, feed it, let's have a party. And I was doing that. Well, I thought, I'm going to go home. I'm going to write to my sponsors. I'm going to say, we should make a film about this. Yeah, good idea. So the year after, a good friend of mine, Alex, from French Canada, I said to him, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go up here and we're going to do a film on this. Okay. So we're up there, we're fishing, we're finished filming in the first week. We've done everything we, we went to do. I had a phone call from my dad one afternoon, my grandfather died. That's all right, he kicked the bucket, he was about due. So I thought, you know what, I, I, fuck this, like let's just have a good day. Um, and we're fishing, fishing, and me and my buddy were playing with the drone. <laughs> I'm like, Screw this technology stuff. I'm going to take you, do that. I'm going out. I'm going to, there's fish busting up. Oh, I'll go out and fish. He can fuck around with that thing. So he does that and I hear the thing take off and <laughs> go flying into the fucking sand dune. And this was around the time, it was, you know, when the first drones started to come out. So you're not talking like 1500 for a drone. You're talking, you know, four or five grand for a shitty base model it's gone well so i'm out fishing my buddy cameraman's away and i he called me onto a fish and i thought oh it's a big dirty shark i cast at it whatever have some fun anyway six hours later or five and a half hours later i pull a bluefin a big eye i thought it was a bluefin right so i i we caught it we whaled it and chucked it in the boat. Was whaled mean like I landed slit its it? Throat. Or you killed it? Yeah. As soon as it came near the boat, I had a, like four gaffs in the fucking thing. Oh, I always thought that you released it. Hell no. And I remember saying and thinking to Charles, "What's mm-hmm. the deal with the tuna?" And I said, "Did he let it go?" And he said, "I think he's let it go." But it's well, how is that possible? Because nah. their metabolisms, they need to always be it moving. Cooked. It'd be impossible. It's cooked. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. So you wait, you killed it. Yeah, yeah. I ate it, and then I got it molded. You won't, you won't get judgment from me on that. Okay, so what's the controversy on it? The controversy is that you did not catch it on the fly. Oh, there was pe- you, people said I bought it, 
Well, you go do research on a 90 kilo big eye tuna, market's about 30 grand. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that you bought it, but I had heard that you had caught it on gear and then put the fly in the mouth because you lost the footage of it on the on the fly or something along well, the lines that, of that. That's, that's good. Um, uh, that's entertaining. Do you have footage of it on the fly? No, I've got nothing. Oh, actually, I do... <laughs> I have footage of the fish getting landed and shanked, and there's a fly rod, of course. It's it. we put we tried to put it in the IF four, but because of the blood and shit everywhere, they weren't into it. How funny is this? For people listening right now, they can't hear my head going "aha" and my mouth half open because it's all coming full, full circle. So just, and I probably should have started with this, but. Um, I first, I mean, I first met you on the internet with the Marlin Comet, but Mm -hmm. I had seen your video and wanted it when I was bringing IF4 Mm -hmm. to Australia. I wanted it in the tour. I thought it would be cool to have an Australian film. And so I arranged to have your show specifically put into Australia. And I received a ton of backlash from it from locals. (laughs) Oh, for sure. And I just figured, oh, well, it's tall poppy syndrome. In Australia, they've got this thing called, I mean, every country's got jealousy, but in this country, it's called tall poppy syndrome. And I thought that, you know what, if for nothing else, it'll be interesting to see how the controversy unfolds. Right. And you rocked in that night, and that was when I realized the impact that you had. Whether I didn't know at the time if I liked it or hated it Mm -hmm. or didn't or was indifferent. I hadn't decided yet, but all I know is that you walked in and there were a lot of people there who uh, looked similar to you and they were there to watch your video. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, oh, well, it's like being at the Drake Film Festival or film tour. Look, a lot of people thought they were more my buddies. I, I showed up with two people. Well, and, and and mom and dad and your parents and that was the other thing when I met your parents and I saw I mean they looked so proud of you. Oh, you can't, I mean, you're you're a new mom. Put yourself in a position of a mom that's seen her son go through the ringer. I think any small achievement is, you know, excitable for for my parents. I had a lot of feelings going on in that moment. Because I had some people telling me they were going to walk out when it came on. I had some people tell me they weren't going to come because of it. And then I had a, a, a large amount of people tell me they were. I had people rolling in to say, oh, I'm just here to see the Jonathan Jones film. <laughs> and I had people walk out saying, Jesus, that was my favorite film. So it was really cool for me to be on that side of things and just watch it as an experiment to see how it all unfolded. Right. And I actually, I actually have no regrets. I really am thankful that we put it into the into the festival. Look, I am too. Um, I'm so grateful because that was it was such a start for me. It was you guys gave me a you, you did something I didn't think you'd do. You opened the door, um, and I'm I'm entirely I'm grateful for that. Always, um, people that show that love. It means so much. And to sit, I didn't even watch the film. I sat with you and I heard him, my buddy told me at the end of that film, everyone stood up and hooted and carried on. And I was like, are you serious? Well, then I heard about it getting played at a a thing in Salt Lake City and people did, I saw a video and people did the same thing. But it was good response in America, right? Huge, huge. Because it was something that was just, it was raw. But I think what was so cool about the video, I mean, obviously it's cool to see Australia's fishing, but 
when I first started making videos back in the like Fly Nation day mm-hmm. when we were making videos, it was all raw like that. And then all of a sudden cameras improved and videographers multiplied. Right. And money came in, yep. a little bit of money came in. And all the videos were looking the same, you a know, commercial. slow motion shot. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was so it was like for me personally, this is so just self-centered. I can't believe I'm about to admit this, but in that moment, watching that dirtbag video again and hearing the old guys be like, oh, well, there's no room for this in here. And seeing the young guys with the tattoos come in, I felt like it was, I felt like it was back then in my heyday when I really was just loving, digging that. That's that's you know? why I did it. For people who are a little bit older, but, you know, people like you and the Jay Johnsons and the Thads and the, the Oliver Whites, those those people, that's what I did it for. So going back to the tuna thing, don't get it twisted or whatever. I didn't catch it on gear. I caught it on a fly rod five and a half hours later of shit. I, you, you just, you don't want that. So to go and make up a story after going through all that trial and tribulation to land a fish of that caliber, think whatever the hell you want to think and go do it. But I can tell you I was there for that fish because two days before that, my best friend's dad passed away and he was fishing 18 hours south at JB. He caught a 64-kilo bluefin tuna off the rocks people said that was bullshit they said all the same shit well you've got two guys who live and breathe fishing two guys who went to school together did grew up doing graffiti to get everything together you don't think that they're not paying attention to the water currents and what's going on i might have been sitting on that flat looking for maybe not a big eye but possibly a yellowfin no one asked what was he doing, but I can tell you, me and, and that other person who caught that other fish, eighteen hours apart, there's something going on. Both lost someone within twenty four hours of catching that fish. Both put in more than a few hundred hours searching for a fish of a lifetime, and putting in the time. So that fish was just a gift. It was a gift from up there, a gift from down there, wherever you want to look at it. That was gifted. Um, and it, to think, if anyone thinks that did something for my career, like, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Is there anything else that you would like to address or to add while you're here? Yeah. Um, I think in the fishing space, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like people to look at my story and, and, you know, look at it and think, well, hey, there, there is opportunity in this sport. There are doors that do open to, to people with different ways of life. Um, and to also know that fly fishing saves lives. It's not just a hashtag. It does. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. And I've been around people that I know it saved their life. So... The only thing I'd like people to know is don't judge a book by its cover. Get to know it, read it. Um, I'm not the person that 99% of the people think I am, which I think this interview might help clear up a little bit. It gives people an insight into who I actually am. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 